will burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Open up the heavens. We want to see you. Open up the floodgates. Almighty river flowing from your heart. Filling every part of our praise. Your presence. Your presence in this place. Your glory on our face. We're looking to the sky. Descending like a cloud. You're standing with us now. We pray that you would open up the heavens today, that we would sense your presence, that we would sense your power and your glory. Lord, we give you so great praise today because we get to start the service with a baptism, a picture of what it means to be dead to self and raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. We just praise you for this one who has come. And Lord, we pray that if there's one within the sound of my voice who has not had this experience of being dead to their old nature and raised to a new creation, that today would be their day of salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, we just pray that we would give you our total hearts and minds and soul as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, amen. Good morning. It's a blessing to greet you from baptismal waters. Well, I used to stand in the water, 
right? I'm on the outside of the water now, which I kind of miss being inside of the pool. But that's all right. We're more sophisticated. We've got a seat up here, right? Yes, sir. All right. But I would say to you today that I really uh, appreciate parents, Christian parents, who spend time with their children and share the word of the Lord with them. And uh, Daniel and Alyssa surely have done just that with Carter. But not just their uh, work uh, to give him the gospel and the Lord's work, uh, hearing the word of God and believing, but the fact that Carter stands before you having trusted Christ probably over a year ago. But he wanted to make absolutely sure that he was made alive by the Lord and that it was true redemption and salvation. And thus then you go through baptismal waters, which is why we call it believer's baptism. So Carter stands before you today to tell you that he knows Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And in obedience, he desires to follow Jesus Christ and what he has told us about baptism. So Carter, upon your profession of faith, trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and the church of the living God following in obedience to Christ, baptizing those, it's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. For we have been buried with Christ through baptism. And we are raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. Amen, amen. If you would uh, grab your uh, connection card there in the pew back in front of you. Hey, uh, Glenn, we've got a little bit of a low womb, womb going on. If we could figure out where that is, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, well, choir's on mute. Okay, anyway. Um, so fill out that connection card, and uh, we've got uh, places on there you can say, uh, you know, I'd like to know more about the church. I'd, I'd like to know more about maybe what, what I just experienced here. What is baptism? What does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? We'd be glad to reach out to you and, and tell you about that and contact you. For the rest of us, maybe we have a prayer request. So please uh, put that down and then put that in the offering plate at the end of the service, okay? Hey, let's turn our attention to... Uh, the church, the body of Christ, and um, what that means. And Cammie's going to read for us uh, a portion of Psalm uh, 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Let the glory of the Lord forever be our joy. May redemption be the theme of our song. For by grace we have been saved, and by grace we shall proclaim to the corners of the earth that Christ has come. Let the nations be glad, let the people
martyrs conquered, though they died. Still we're holding out the cross, crossing ocean suffering loss, shall endure all things to win the crown of life. Oh, let the nations be glad, let the people rejoice, for salvation belongs to our God. Let the whole earth be filled with the praises of belongs to our Lord. The last verse we just sang, as your holy church goes forth in the Holy Spirit's power. There's a great old hymn that reminds us of God's holy church, that he is our only foundation. Amen. The church is one foundation. Let's sing this great hymn together. Spirit and the Word, from heaven He came. 
you to an old song. Um, John 13, 34 and 35 says, a new commandment I give you. Now, if it's a new commandment, you got to ask yourself the question, what was the original commandment or the old commandment? Well, from Matthew 22, 37, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, right? But a new commandment, Jesus says, I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this next song, don't raise your hands. If you were in a youth group in the late 60s or 70s or maybe early 80s, you knew this song. And uh, for King and Country has put a little bit of a new spin on it. And for this generation, and I'm glad they did because this song is so important that we understand that we are one in the Lord. Amen. So let's sing it together. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they'll by our love, by our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand, we will walk with each other. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Let's stand and sing it. They'll know us by our love. 
And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Oh, they'll know us by our love, our love, our love, our love. They'll know us by our love, our love, our love, our love. Oh, 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 Trust in Him, King of Heaven. We will answer the call. We will follow, bringing hope to the world, filled with passion, filled with power, and proclaim salvation. We will. We will. 
filled with passion, filled with power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. There's salvation in Jesus' name. There's salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Great God, we are so thankful for redeeming grace, redeeming love, to just be reminded that salvation is of the Lord, just to echo Paul's words in Galatians that you actually set him apart before he was born, called him by grace. And Lord, what we're reading today is, of course, uh, that apostolic word to Paul uh, that you gave him to be a preacher of the gospel. And, Lord, to proclaim what the scriptures say. And, Father, I would ask that you would help us today uh, as a church. We are called your church, your body. Lord, help us to see really clearly through the word what the community of faith is called to be and what we are as a church body. Lord, we need this in our day, Lord, to truly know and understand what the church is all about. And we pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right. Awesome, wonderful text of Scripture we face again in the book of Ephesians. Uh, today I want to help you see the forest before we meander in the trees. Okay, we did this early on when we were trying to figure out how to look at the book of Ephesians correctly. And so today, listen to the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 11 of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Here's what the word of God says. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, but what is by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Let that resonate in your mind. One new man in the place of the two, 
so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19 is a transition. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Westminster Seminary offered a class once called Ecclesiology for Dummies. Y'all know what ecclesiology, ecclesia means church. So, you know, we do have those. Uh, I saw one once called Microsoft for Dummies. I mean, I'm all in when it comes to learning something on the computer because I don't know a whole lot about that. I'm still old school. But the fact of the matter is, what is the assumption if you say Microsoft for Dummies or Ecclesia, Church Life for Dummies, what is the assumption? Well, there is certainly a major amount of ignorance among those who profess to be evangelical about what the nature and function of the church is. Lest you didn't see, when you get to verse 19, you clearly see where Paul is headed in the book of Ephesians. And that's going to bring us all the way down, uh, of course, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, chapter 3, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on, and on earth is named. And then beginning in verse 20, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works within us. And to him be glory in the... See it? So this is where Paul, of course, is headed. So the class at Westminster Seminary was probably 25, 30 years ago. Meaning there's a lot of ignorance concerning the function and role of the church, say, 30 years ago. What can we say about today? What would we say about our understanding of the church? We could say that evangelicals in the past have been strong on many fronts, such as the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, I'm not so sure how we're doing today on that either. Uh, there could, there's certainly some slippage going on even in SBC life. But traditionally, all the way back to the year 1970 and on, we've seen major changes in seminary life for SBC life, for instance, in the six major seminaries where we went from disbelieving the, the bodily resurrection of Christ or not believing uh, in straightforward literal interpretation of certain things that are given in the Bible, denying the virgin birth. We know that our seminaries actually have professors who believed and taught that Jesus was not born of a virgin. We know that happened before there was a resurgence and things changed. Thank the Lord for that. But I was carried to the seminary, uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 80s uh, and heard these pastors preach and proclaim. I, I remember clearly Adrian Rogers saying from the lectern or wherever we were in Dallas and in San Antonio, it's better to be divided by truth than united by error. And so we stood on, on the Word of God and thank the Lord for that. 
Evangelicals have been relatively strong on moral evils, such as the evil of abortion. And we would have to say it is right and good to stand against the moral evils of our day. Would y'all not say that? It is right to do just that. We remain strong for the most part. And I say for the most part, there's been some slippage on issues such as homosexuality. Homosexuality is not an alternative lifestyle that's acceptable before God. And it is also not good for a society. We, people who, are, who deny that have not looked at the trajectory of history and where we are today as a country. There are consequences when you break down God's moral order and God's intended purpose in creating marriage, male and female. Right? We know this. Uh, we have been strong on the issues of evangelism and missions. Uh, I would characterize the 20th century. You're in the 21st now, right? I would characterize the 20th century by saying it was focused lar in large part on world evangelization and missions. We are to proclaim these issues that I've just spoken of with clarity. However, our understanding of the church has suffered greatly in the midst of all the many strengths. There's no question about this. The lack of biblical understanding of the church has resulted in three things I want to say up front or talk about. So maybe we should say, how do we view the church? Or how do you actually view the church? And let's talk about three things. First, there's confusion. And then there is often indifference. And then there is the dreaded contempt that we see in our world against the church. So what is your personal understanding of the church? If someone stiff-armed you into a corner somewhere in the building, here on the campus of the FBCO, and asked you, what is the church? Could you tell them? Could you define your understanding of what the church actually is? Are these not relevant good questions for our day? I think so. So what is your understanding of the church? What if we lined up 100 members here at FBCO and asked the question, what is the church? Better yet, we could ask the question, what is the purpose of the church? Could you give a biblical answer to why or what or how the church exists and what for? So I would say that there are two veins of first confusion that go on in the church today. One is a theological confusion. And why do I say that? Because the church has suffered, in my opinion... You can beg to differ from rampant dispensational theology throughout the 20th century that tends to center upon Israel and look at the church as plan B with a great parenthesis added to that. So I think it is an error to see two distinct peoples of God. I think that's an error. The view often undermines a healthy view of what the church actually is. Now we can talk off script. In my office one day, if you're a firm dispensationalist, you certainly has, have a lot of holes in your eschatology if you believe that, right? And uh, you may point out some in mine, but the fact of the matter is, I think it's a gross error to divide the people of God like that. According to what this text says, there's one new humanity, right? Okay. But theological confusion also lends itself to practical, applicable confusion in the way we live life. In other words, bad theology will trickle down into the practical. So here's the deal. The church has suffered from sociology and pragmatism. Have we not? The church, or years ago, we had who we 
referred to as missiologists. That means what? The study of... Come on, folks. Missions, right? Missiologists. And we have them in SBC life. I mean, we would hope that the uh, president of the IMB and the president of the North American Mission Board would consider themselves missiologists, right? If they're over those entities, they would have to consider themselves that way. So when our missiologists, back years ago, mission scholars, became sociologists instead of theologians, it changed the face of missions. Okay? Christianity was viewed not so much as the way, the truth, and the life that's found only in Christ Jesus the Lord, but rather as a sociological movement. And as a sociological movement, there are socioeconomic, gender, and racial factors. So the sociology of the missiologist, say that three times, I'll give you a cup of coffee from, right? Sociologist movement, there was the, the sociological sociology of missiologists was translated over into the church. Now, I won't give you the details of all the history in that movement right now, but it's not a pretty picture. So we had a sociological movement, and that perspective came over into church life. This is what it looks like. As a church today, we need to be defined by sociological niches, right? We have to be defined that way. And then what's the church going to do? We're going to scratch the itches of the niches. That's literally what has happened in our world in most people or in most churches. From this mentality came the reality that the New Testament knows nothing about. What does the New Testament not know anything about? Baby boomer churches. The New Testament, folks, knows nothing about baby boomer churches. Last time I checked, there's one new humanity, right? Okay, what about Gen X churches? What about yuppie? You got to say it like that, right? What about the yuppie churches and the middle class churches? Well, the church, in turn, turned into a grand marketing experiment based on sociological observations driven by the needs of particular groups. Do I need to say all that again? Are y'all with me? I mean, it's pretty obvious. So now what is the church like today? Well, in general, what do we have? The first word that comes to my mind is programs. The church is reduced to programs. We may call it program mania. The church then is not seen as the ecclesia, which is the covenant people of God, redeemed by God's grace, but the church is defined in terms of programs. Uh, our secretaries could vouch for this at times. Sometimes it's different. But most of the time when people call and ask about our church, they ask, they don't ask what do we believe or whom do you baptize, what's your thoughts on the Bible, what's your view of worship. They ask, what are your programs? Y'all know this is true, don't you? That's usually what takes place. Let's be honest, most churches qualify as program mania run amok. We see entertainment galore. Most of what we see is viewed from an entertainment aspect. And check this out. Even our evangelistic efforts are often driven at times by the thought 
that if we entertain them enough, they will be interested. And then we can entertain them right into the kingdom of God. Just like Jesus did in the Gospels, right? That's our mentality sometimes. So, stop and think with me for a moment. What are the primary ministries of the church? What are they? Well, worship, preaching of the word, be careful, discipline. Wow. Where has that gone over the years? Well, you, you see it clearly. Only, only thing you have to do, all you have to do is start through the book of Acts and get to Acts chapter 5. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. God is serious. And what he intends for his people to be is serious. So in many sectors of evangelicalism, the church has lost her identity. There's rampant, albeit unconscious, confusion. And somebody, somebody saying in this room, well, yes, preacher, but it tastes great. And it's also less filling. Right? And it's true. It's certainly true. So that's the confusion. Now let's talk for a moment about indifference. Well, we can begin by addressing the idea of church membership. Can't we? Think about this for a moment. In many circles, the idea of church membership is archaic, and it's a thing of the past. In many circles, if you call another church to request a letter, they're going to say, what's a letter? I mean, do you, that's pretty archaic for you to be checking up on anybody about what their actual life looked like when they were part of my church. But now they've moved to another church, and how... Far be it from any pastor to inquire about what the member did or why they left or what was their reasoning for leaving. So, we think about this for a moment. Uh, why is it a thing of the past? Why is it so archaic? Well, we don't really desire to be part of something in which there is a high commitment of accountability. Let's just be honest. And if you put any requirements on people, that certainly causes people to say, I don't want to be a part of a church. We prefer to be able to live out our lives in a spiritual, lazy luster in such a way that we don't have any commitments. I don't hear a lot of amens, but you know I'm telling the truth, right? I certainly don't want anybody sticking their noses into my business. I don't want to go to a place where they actually expect something from me. So what happened? Well, church life, when it comes to indifference, shifted from community to what? Individualism, which by the way, if you can't see individualism run amok in our country, you haven't opened your eyes. So, the fact is, individualism makes people indifferent to the concept of a community of faith, of which I've just read to you all about the community of faith, especially beginning in verse 19. Isn't community the antonym to individual? So our individualism drives our thinking and indifference to the concept of a church as a community. It drives our indifference toward the body of Christ that we're called by God to be a part of. So, for believers, the question used to be, what church should I join? The question today is, why should I join a church at all? And all too often, the real response is, why should I even go to church at all? Finally, what can we say about contempt? Confusion, indifference, contempt. Natalie and I went to seminary with people who did not attend church. Can y'all believe that? It shocked me that people studying in seminary would graduate 
And they didn't go to church in seminary, but yet they were going to pastor churches where they expected people to come to church. Right? Mind-blowing. Some of it was just straight-up disobedience. Uh, it, was, it was a contempt, really, against the church to think that you can go to a seminary, theologically trained institution where you're going to get your training and not go to a local body of assembly where you're actually going to one day be leading them. But that's absolutely the truth. But yet, some of them didn't go to a church, but they were members of a para-church organization. And this, in their opinion, was where the real action is. There was nothing happening down at the local church. Many see the church as irrelevant and effective, ineffective. So, why would you want to bother with going to a church, a local assembly of believers, when you can just get a few people out on the fringe that are militantly involved in evangelism? And we're just going to link up with them and not go to a local body. We have other ways and better ways of doing things, so just forget the church. Unfortunately, the church has done things in the past, past that certainly has tarnished her image, right? We give the contemporary audience a lot of food, for fodder. We do. Many see the church as a massive assembly of hypocrites. And you got that right. It's true for all of us in some form or fashion. I think Mark Dever was the one who was asked, was told by a lady, he was, it was, I think it was a family member, he was encouraging her to come to church. And she said, church up there is just full of a whole lot of vipers. And he responded by saying, and the world is not filled with all kinds of vipers. He goes on to tell her why uh, there's room for you, why there's still grace, so that you can slither right on into the church with us, right? <laughs> because in, in many circles, in many ways, we think about this. And I remember old Coach Rich always telling me this, preacher, when it's all said and done, we're all sinners, saved by grace. Saved by grace, right? But there is, certainly, and has been things in the past and people's experiences. How many times have we knocked on doors? Which I believe we've made an utter fail by stopping knocking on doors. Okay? I heard, I heard Mr. Bill back there. Well, the fact is, how many times have we knocked on a door and someone said, I would never go to that place. I've seen what a Baptist preacher will do. I've, I've seen what they do to people. And, and we know we, we all hear those stories. We could throw in bad experiences and therefore, here's the premise, contempt, I hate all churches. We know there are many levels of contempt toward the church today. So consider those things, indifference, confusion, I'm sorry, confusion, indifference, and contempt. Okay, you ready for this? I believe that the passage that is put before us is an amazing remedy for confusion, indifference, and contempt toward the church. And I believe as a church, if we will take Paul's teaching seriously, over the next few weeks, it will help us with all of our maladies about what we think. It will help wrong-headedness in regard to what the church is. Some scholars see this passage as the most ecclesiological, church-oriented section in the entire New Testament. That's a mouthful, right? To consider that you just read from Holy Scripture what some believe is, is kind of the top tier of ecclesiological teaching regarding the church. So today, let me help you see the forest before the trees. So that means I'm not going to exposit every part of it. This let me help you see. So this is actually the fourth section in the book of Ephesians. Did y'all know that? 
Well, we've been grinding through some so long that y'all forgot that. I get it. But 4 through 14 of chapter 1 is the great doxology or sympathy of praise for what God has done for us in our salvation. Right? That's 4 through 14. 15 through 23 of chapter 1 is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. The third section is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, how God made us alive in Christ. And so then we arrive at the fourth section, which is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. But I would encourage you to read chapter 2 as a whole. Why? Because verses 11 through 22 actually parallel chapter 2, 1 through 10. In chapter 2, 1 through 3, we see man's dreadful condition as being dead and trespasses from sin, cut off from God and under the wrath of God. If you don't know Christ, then you are a child of wrath, even as the rest. That's what the Bible says. No matter how you come away from here understanding the description of man, it is still a vivid, graphic understanding of a sinner outside of God. In other words, the sinner is dead to God. That's the terminology. Dead to God. In 4 through 7, we introduce the wonderful grace of God and how God made us alive in Christ. What's God's remedy for our dreadful condition? What is it? God made us alive by grace. Amen? God made us alive by grace. God made us alive. This is, the, this is only, this is given to those who were dead in trespasses and sin, and God thus has made them alive. I like what one writer said. Conversion is the act in which our stories receive a holy conjunction. But God. Aren't y'all thankful for God's work in saving us? By grace, through faith. It is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. Do you remember the two most glorious words again? But God. Now, verses 8 through 10, we get a, a wonderful summary that we're saved by grace through faith for good works. Right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, uh, in Christ alone, unto good works. Now... Let's consider chapter 2, 11 through 22. He begins once again with the dreadful condition of man. But the emphasis here is not so much being dead in our trespasses and sin, but the dreadful condition of not being the people of God. Huge understanding of what's going on at this point in this text. In other words, the horizontal, the vertical affects the horizontal. Okay? So in this sense... We're moving to the terms of actually being the people of God. In chapter 2, 1 through 3, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Is that pretty bad? Well, in chapter 2, 11 through 12, he gives us more bad news. Gentiles after the flesh. Called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. What does that mean? Jews referring as circumcised to Gentiles who were Uncircumcised. We'll unpack that. Strangers, aliens, cut off from God, without hope in this world. So in the section 2, 1 through 3, in a sense, it points to the vertical relationship between us and God. 
and the dreadful condition that we have. But in chapter 2, 11 through 12, it points to the dreadful conditions in terms of our relationship with the people of God. We were not the people of God at all. We're going to talk about this word formally or at one time. You were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in this world. So this focus is on us not being the people of God. We don't think about this much today, do we? To be alienated from God by nature is to be alienated from the people of God. See how important this is? The corollary is this. To be alienated from God's people is to be alienated from God. God and his people are so inextricably woven together in the scriptures that they cannot be separated. To be outside of the people of God is to be without God. This is why the fundamental disdain of confusion and indifference and contempt about the church is so wrong-headed. You cannot have God without having his people. To be alienated from one is to be alienated from the other. If you're alienated from God because you are, you, you are alienated from God, if you're, in a, if you're in a position of unregenerate, without God and without hope. What do you need? You need reconciliation, which is all over this text, right? Who is our peace? Jesus Christ, what a joy it's going to be to look into that. You need to be reconciled. Well, get that. I get it. We all should get that, right? Vertically. However, this passage also takes into account not just the vertical reconciliation, but what about the horizontal? In Christ, we are reconciled to who? One another. This is true of Jews and Gentiles. It's true of blacks and whites. Are y'all listening? It's true of Hispanics. And Asians. It's true of men and women. We are reconciled together as we have been reconciled to God. There's no way we could ever appreciate this as much as the early Ephesians would have appreciated it. Folks, do you understand how deep the racial division was between the Jew and the Gentile? Remember? What are you doing going to this woman at the well? Because Jews have no dealings with anybody outside, right? i.e. Samaritans or Gentiles. I would tell you that this racial, the, the, the deepness of this racial divide was deeper than anything you could have found in Mississippi in the 1960s. I'm telling you folks, that's how bad this division was. Why do you think it's so awesome that it says Jesus knocked down this wall of division? Jesus tore down this wall of division. Yet Paul says here is one of the glorious things about the gospel of Christ. And what he has done for us on the cross. He has reconciled us to God and to one another. We are now one. Again, watch this. Chapter 2, verse 2, 10 concludes with God created us into a path of good works. And then in chapter 2, 11 through 22 concludes with us being God's temple. You are being built together into a dwelling place of God by his spirit. There's one new man, verse 15 of chapter 2. There's one new body, verse 16 of chapter 2. So this passage not only reveals how we relate to God now, but also how we are to relate to one another. And this is going to pave the way to chapter 3 on the church 
and God's eternal purpose through His church. So verses 11 through 13, we look at our dreadful condition as it relates to the people of God. For music selection, when we preach on the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, David's going to have a hard time. I don't think we're going to pull out an old Baptist hymnal that talks about that. But the fact is, uh, in verses 14 through 18, we're going to find how dreadful the condition is and how it was remedied through Christ. So this passage will expound the benefits of being in Christ Jesus. These are the results of the actual atoning sacrifice and how it relates to the people of God. So the emphasis is certainly still on the vertical. But these verses focus to a subsequent horizontal relationship because we've been reconciled together in one humanity from the Lord. So I hope you grasp the truth here that to be Christ-less is to be lost as far as your relationship to God. But without Christ, we are lost in our relationships to one another as well. That make sense? The garden sin of Adam and Eve represents or presents this vertical disruption of the relationship to God and man. Adam, where are you? Folks, you know God knew where he was, physically speaking. But what is his condition at that particular point before the Lord? Uh, there was major disruption, right? Catastrophic disruption between God and Adam. Okay? Adam was hiding himself in the garden. Why? Because he was naked and he knew it. And why are you hiding yourself from me? Adam, who told you that you were naked? Do y'all think that the horizontal was damaged at all in relationships when Adam says, Lord, the woman that you gave to me? There is no question that Adam, immediately, he understood his relationship was disrupted with God. But not only that, but with one another. Thus, we see the need for redeemed relationships. And isn't it going to be wonderful to study Ephesians 5 when it comes to the marriage relationship? Which I want to remind you is life together under the Spirit of God in a redeemed relationship. Not one like we saw initially with Adam and Eve. Usurpation and domineering. That's not the way God says a husband should function in the New Testament. That's not the way a wife is supposed to respond to her husband. We're going to get to see all of that. So the glorious work of Christ brings reconciliation, not only with God vertically, but also reconciliation with one another. And then in verses 19 through 22, we're going to see the summary of what we are as the church. Now, two applications and we're done. That was easy, wasn't it? Here's the application. We need to be reoriented on the wonder and beauty of the church. Don't you all agree? The church is not some crusty, irrelevant institution. It's not an association of do-gooders. The church is not a sociological gathering of similar socioeconomic, racial, stratus societies. The church here is presented in all of its glory as one new man. Hallelujah. You know, I didn't tell you the title of the sermon, but you should have seen it at the top. Reconciled to God in one body. A new humanity. That's what the church should be seen as. Paul thought often along two lines. Adam and Christ. This 
was old in his mind and new. We all come into this world as part of the old humanity in Adam. We come into this world dead in trespasses and sin. We are in Adam and we're fading away in this present world. When God lays hold of us, something takes place. When we believe the gospel, something takes place. We are out of Adam and we are in Christ. Isn't that awesome? We are in Christ and we are part of a new humanity in Christ And Christ, as we know from the Word of God, is considered the last Adam, right? Folks, it's a glorious wonder to be a part of God's new humanity. And if you're saved today, you are part of it. We are not an amalgamation of the best thing that this world has to offer. I've looked at you. The most impressive thing about you is that you're not impressive. But yet God has saved us and brought us together into this church body. No matter what your socioeconomic class is, no matter what your race is, no matter, no matter, period. Okay? So the church is a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. We are birthed to sing praises to God our Savior. We are one man and also one body. You see it here? We are diverse. Yet truly one. I'm glad everybody in this church is not like me. And you are too. Right? You're glad. So why did Paul put so much emphasis on the church as a body? It's because the church is the very presence of Christ in this world. Y'all do know that, right? But we've forgotten that because you don't hear it preached much. It's because the church is the very presence of Christ. Is Christ still present in this world? Yes and no. He bodily ascended into heaven. Unless you got really bad theology, he's still bodily ascended at the right hand of the Father today. Okay? So the the fact is, the physical body of Christ ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. The Bible says he makes intercession for his people from the place of glory, and he will come again and judge the living and the dead from that place of glory. That's what the Bible teaches. His kingdom will have no end. So in another sense, however, Christ is present in the world. He is present through the power of the Holy Spirit in his body, the church. We are also the very Israel of God. We are the very Israel of God. The covenants and the promises are mine and yours because of Jesus. Hallelujah for that truth. God didn't design to save you all by yourself. Now, we think about that individually. Just about every song that we hear now that's contemporary is about me and salvation and what God did for me. But I want to remind you that God did not save you to be by yourself. He saved you to be with one another. That's the way it is. He did not save you to be a Lone Ranger Christian. He saved you and placed you into this growing temple as a part of the people of God. You won't get to heaven all by yourself. No more than you can stick your elbow in your ear. Go for it. You can't even lick your elbow. Go for it. Now, some of you spindly arms might come close. But let me tell you, folks, that's not the way the Lord God presents the body of believers. He presents us as a body. One among a sum total. I get that. And you are saved individually. But you're not going to go to glory apart from other believers who are headed to glory as well. So God designed to take you to heaven with his people. And his people called out of this world and into his body is manifested in the local church. 
in the local church. We are, check this out, the very dwelling of God. Folks, please pray that God will help you see the beauty and wonder of the church. Again, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus. World without end. Amen. Finally, we need to be reoriented on what it means to be the church of the living God. Not just the glory of the church. But what does it mean for you and I to be part of this particular body? I hope you got a taste of what it means in the stark contrast of being outside of the people of God and now what it means to be inside as the people of God. This passage reveals to us that there are two kinds of people in this world. Are y'all listening? There are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside. Did y'all hear that clearly? There are those who are inside of Christ and then there are those who are outside of Christ. There's the people of God and then there's the people who are not God's. That's clearly in this text of Scripture. So the passage reveals to us that there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And I know, I get it. This is a discrimination between the saved and the lost. We're not supposed to make any discrimination claims in our world today. But you can't preach the Bible without it being discriminatory on this line. Do you, that's exactly why people hate the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the only way to be saved. Because humanity has a default setting that says, no, there has to be many ways and I actually can do something to get my way there. But folks, understand something. The Bible tells it over and over and over again. Think about this, how clear it is from the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. But the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Folks, do you see? Jesus said there are two roads. There are two gates. That's discriminatory. Right? I'm trying to get you to understand there's something radically different from being far off in this text and being brought near. Do you see it? You who were once far off, praise God, have been brought near. And how are you brought near? There's only one way. It's the atonement of the Son of God. Sacrifice, brought near by the blood of Christ. So here's this glorious news of the gospel. You may have walked into this local assembly together today as a stranger to Christ. Outside of his covenant, without hope in this world. But today, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you embrace him as your savior, you can be a part of the people of God. Hallelujah for that truth. You could have walked into this place totally Christ-less. But Christ can bring you near through his sacrifice. You could have come in here today homeless, but Christ can give you citizenship in heaven. You may have come here today friendless. Last time I checked, Jesus is a friend to sinners. Amen? Right? You may have come into this place godless, but Jesus Christ today can be your peace. He can reconcile you to God. You may have entered this place as a rebel today, but you can leave this place as a subject. 
of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You may have walked into this place as a lost as you can be. But today, you can be found. You could have walked in blind. But today, you can see. Today is the day of salvation. Christian, we have wonderful privileges as a people of God. Do you understand that no other group on the planet can lay, lay claim to the privileges that we have? We need to live like it. We need to act like it. We need to care about the people of God and the church of God more than we do. We need to see this more as another responsibility on the list and figure out that you are the church. Amen? It's not another responsibility we tag on. You are the people of God. That's your identity. That's who you are. The covenant promises are ours. And in Christ Jesus, every promise is yes and amen. So, it's a privilege and joy to be a member of the people of the living God. How well do you esteem the body of Christ? What's your view of the church? How seriously do you take the privileges of being the people of God? How seriously do you take the responsibilities of being the people of God? We belong to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your spirit and the word that we know that can be preached. And in the power of the word and the Holy Spirit of God, as we learn from Ezekiel, you can even resurrect dead men's bones. We know the power of the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we ask you first, would you save a sinner today? Lord, would you save someone and move them from a place of being outside of the people of God to being inside of the people of God? From being without God in this world and hopeless to being in Christ and having all the hope in this world. God, would you do that? And for Christians, Lord, help us, Father. Help all of us. Lord, I learned so much and was convicted of so much about the church. How we often want to throw in the towel and how we Sometimes even give up on people. If they're yours, Lord God, would you help them to see? Not out of indifference. Not out of confusion. Not out of contempt for the church. Lord God, help us to be rightly reoriented to the beauty and wonder of your church. Lord, help us not only to think about the beauty and wonder, but Lord, our our identity as your people. What does that really mean? What is our responsibility to you and to one another in a local body? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as a matter of some, but exhorting one another as much the more we see the day approaching. Lord, the church of the living God is needed more in this world today than ever. God, help us be the church. Help us, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come just as you are And hear the Spirit
seated for a moment. Uh, Chad and Corbin, come on up here. Similarly to uh, Carter, Corbin has been uh, thinking and praying, uh, dealing with his salvation from the Lord for quite some time. Uh, Chad and I have talked about it, and we all kind of feel like that that child needs to make that, take that step where they, I want to obey Christ based upon what Jesus Christ has done in me. And children, it's not easy, is it? You've all had them, right? <laughs> Most of you have had them. And they've grown up. If you're a father, you were one day a son. <laughs> right? If you're a mother, you were one, one time a daughter. So we know how these things work with kids. And we, we think about, you know, do they know it? Do, do, are they sure? Do they understand the gospel? And all these things. I get that. But I want to remind you that John 3.16 is in the continuous action of believing. We put so much emphasis on that one moment of time and we forget about the one moment of time all the way to where we are today. Look, folks, if you're not believing in Christ today, you're not saved. So, in other words, we're going to let the Lord God take care of this for sure. But, but Corbin will stand before you right now and tell you that he has trusted. He's given all he knows of himself. The all he knows of Christ has revealed in the Scripture. And he's trusted Jesus as his Lord and he's ready to follow in believer's baptism. Can we say amen to that? Amen. All right. So I want to let you know that. We'll, we'll bring Corbett back soon and, and participate in baptism. All right? You got something to say, Dad? No, I was just walking. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. All right. Praise the Lord. Well, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord today. I hope that we will learn. Uh, think about this. From this point on, the emphasis in large part is going to be upon the church. When we get to chapter 4, it's going to be part and parcel to how we function as a church. The gifts that God has given at least one gift has been given to you if you're a believer. And how are you using that particular gift in the body of Christ? And we're going to move on through the text and hit chapter 5. And that's going to become an analogy of Christ's love for his church. You get that, right? When you get to chapter 5, when we start talking about doing the will of God and start talking about marriage, it's still building upon that incredible mystery of Christ and his church. So... I'm excited about going through it. Pray for your pastor that we'll stay tight to the text and preach what the Word of God says. And we'll be obedient to the Lord. Amen. All right, let's stand to our feet. We'll be dismissed with a song. As we go, let's sing, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. Let the nations be glad. Let the people rest.